In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The uh, Roman Catholic Church, back in the uh, olden, olden days, did a lot of great work evangelizing the continent of Asia. And in particular, they sent quite a few missionaries out to evangelize people in China. And in fact, their mission was so successful among the native Chinese that they soon had people they thought would be good candidates for ordination to perform services and to be a local um, priesthood and you know, eventually an entire church hierarchy. But they had a problem. This was back in the old, old days when the Roman Catholic Church was deadly serious that everything had to be done in Latin. Uh, the scriptures could only be read in Latin. The liturgy could only be uh, spoken in Latin. And the problem they ran into was that the Chinese sound system and the Latin sound system are radically different. So as they were trying to train um, native Chinese people to be priests and so on, they just couldn't pronounce the Latin in a way that was acceptable or intelligible to the people that were instructing them. And for them, this was a matter of the greatest consequence. Suppose that you had someone performing a baptismal ritual and saying, ego baptizo, te in spirit, et cetera, et cetera, doing the baptismal form formula for I baptize you. What if they said it wrong? It might be that this person wasn't actually baptized. They took it that seriously that it had to be, had to be done in Latin. But really, that's not something that unusual if you look at examples of different major world religions. If you're a good Jew, you teach your children Hebrew. Not because you want them necessarily to speak Hebrew in an everyday context, but because you want them to be able to read the scriptures in Hebrew. And you want them to be able to pray certain prayers in Hebrew. It's still the opinion of, of, Mus of Muslims, Orthodox Islam, uh, that you can't really translate the Quran. You can do an interpretation of the Quran in a language other than Arabic, but it's no longer the Quran when you do that. So we see examples uh, from all sorts of different world religions of the idea that their religion is bound up in a certain language. And really, that's just another form of something that's even more common, which is the idea that a religion is bound up with a certain culture or a certain ethnicity or in some extreme cases, even a certain race. People have um, uh, believed that about certain religions, that if you couldn't, you couldn't be a part of that religion unless you were of a certain race. Um, we know about the, the caste system of the Hindus, for example. Um, so what we see here in Pentecost, though, is a radically different religion, a religion that is deliberately transcending boundaries of language and culture and ethnicity and race and that reveals a gospel that is not lost in translation, but is loosed in translation, that has those kind of boundaries steadily stripped away from it. So let's attend to the, to the scriptures. Um, I'm reading from Acts chapter two, uh, the verses one through 11 that we did for our epistle reading. So first of all, in our first verse, we see that the day of Pentecost is the occasion for what happens in the scripture. Now, what was Pentecost? Pentecost was a festival that was celebrated 50 days after um, Passover. 
So you had the Passover ceremony, uh, ceremonies and then fixed from that 50 days later, there was uh, the Pentecost ceremonies. It was a belief uh, among Jews traditionally that the Pentecost uh, festival was to celebrate the giving, the giving of the law. So the Jews um, had their uh, Passover where they were liberated from their captivity in Egypt and then, and then brought over into, the, into the, uh, um, the Holy Lands. And then on Mount Sinai, about 50 days later, they were given the law. That was a traditional belief, but it's not really it's not uh, totally sure that that was the original occasion for the festival because in the scriptures, it's just described as kind of a harvest festival. People would bring in their offerings of the, of the first fruits of the harvest to be blessed for hopes of more harvest later on. And so that's probably the occasion for which all these people are gathered together in the scripture um, near the temple. They were all gathered there together probably to offer from their first fruits of their harvest to be uh, blessed by the priests in the temple. And also in verse 1, it says that um, they, meaning, meaning probably not just the apostles, but probably the apostles and, and many of, of the core disciples of Jesus, perhaps as many as 100, 120 or more, were all gathered in one accord, one accord in one place. What place exactly is hard to say from just looking at the scripture. Uh, verse 2 does refer to it as a house. But it's not clear whether this is a, is this a private house that we're talking about, that where they're all gathered, because the temple in Jerusalem is also referred to as a house. And it would make sense if they're either in the temple or close to the temple, because it seems like when things start to happen and the miracle starts to come among them, they very quickly have a large crowd of onlookers and, and, and people that are um, interested in what's going on or gawking at what's going on and that sort of thing. So maybe, maybe they're in the temple, maybe they're near the temple. Um, but um, not entirely clear where the, our setting is. Just that we know that it was someplace where people, a, a, a crowd could easily be drawn. Now, um, we have a miracle that occurs, right? There's a, a sound of a rushing mighty wind and it fills all the house where they were. And maybe more than just the house because it seems like a crowd, again, it seems like a crowd gathers pretty quickly. So you have to imagine if this is in a private house, this is actually a noise that can be heard in the, in, the, in the vicinity. This is something almost like a tornado or something like that where you could hear it maybe uh, a mile away or more. Um, but since it gathers so many people together, this must be a very loud noise. And then in verse 3, we see that tongues uh, at, like as of fire um, come down. Um, now this, the fact that they're of fire is, of course fulfilling something that was prophesied earlier by John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but there comes one after me who will baptize you with uh, the Holy Spirit and with fire. Um, so John the Baptist, way back in the, in before Jesus' ministry, has already pointed us towards the symbolism of fire. Now, uh, it's kind of interesting, like, why fire? Fire can be a symbol of judgment in Scripture, the place of eternal punishment is referred to as a lake of fire. And similarly, fire comes down um, uh, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and other, another dramatic incidence of judgment. But God also speaks from the fire to Moses and a very curious fire, a fire that's in a bush but does not fully consume that bush. Um, so it's, I, th I think probably we're supposed to get both of those senses from the fact that these tongues are of fire. Fire um, has a tendency to judge, um, so it separates 
the light from the darkness. It separates those who are believers from those who are not. Uh, and it also just manifests God's presence. And in verse 4, um, when that fire rests upon the apostles, it says that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is the uh, gift of speaking in tongues. And very clearly in this passage, that refers to the ability to speak foreign languages. So if, if someone were to receive the miraculous gift to be able to speak Russian or, or French or German or what have you, that's the kind of, of gift of tongues um, that's being described here. Now there's, uh, of course, a lot of controversy about whether that's that's um, always the way the gift of tongues looks. There's certainly many Christians today that believe there's another kind of gift of tongues that we can receive, um, but it doesn't seem to be a gift of speaking in any kind of recognizable or intelligible foreign language. We all know that there's a lot of Pentecostals and, and Charismatics that think they have the gift of tongues, but it doesn't seem to mean the ability to speak actual foreign languages it means the ability to produce like these ecstatic vocalizations. Um, and to the extent that people have studied those ecstatic vocalizations, they don't seem to be any language at all. They don't seem to have a pattern of language. Um, people from different languages make different sounds when they're doing that kind of uh, speaking in tongues. Uh, it's, not it's, it's pretty clear this is not the kind of gift that's being described here in Acts chapter 2. In fact, if you look at interpretations down throughout church history, from the church, early church fathers down to contempor uh, relatively contemporary times, um, I can't find anybody that interprets the gift of tongues as meaning anything besides speaking in an actual foreign language until the 20th century. Um, the, the, around the 20th century, when you have the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement, people start to interpret it this way. Um, but I can't find any, any evidence, and I'd be happy to be proven wrong, but I can't find any evidence in any of the interpretations I've seen before the 20th century that interpret speaking in tongues as meaning anything besides speaking in an actual uh, foreign language. Now, does that mean that the, what the Charismatics or the Pentecostals do with speaking in tongues is bad? I'm not saying that, no. Um, I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing. Perhaps there's, there's some sense in which those ecstatic utterances can edify them or make them feel closer to God in some fashion. I don't really know. I don't want to say it for it or against it. Um, but it's not the gift of tongues that's being described here. And I, don't, I think you can make the case that that kind of gift of tongues isn't described anywhere um, in Scripture. But one thing I will say, def I will come out definitively against, is uh, there's, there's certainly many people that want you to feel like you're not fully a Christian unless you can speak in those ecstatic meaningless utterances that the Charismatics and the Pentecostals do. And that's definitely not true. That is not a necessary sign of conversion to be able to speak in tongues. Um, you shouldn't feel like you're a second-class Christian or not a Christian if you can't do that. That's, that I will say for sure. Um, but the gift of tongues here means the ability to speak actual foreign languages in ways that people that speak that language can understand. Now, um, in verse 5, it says, There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews out of every nation under heaven. One interesting thing here in verse 5 is it says dwelling, and that's pretty accurate to the original Greek. This is something, this is a word that's stronger than just visiting. 
These people aren't just visiting Jerusalem, they're dwelling in Jerusalem. This is a long-term thing. So some people might just be in town for the Pentecost festival, but it seems like some people here are actually having a long-term stay in the city of Jerusalem. And why would that be? Well, some commentators think that this was the product of uh, a large amount of messianic expectation that people were expecting the Messiah to, re to reveal himself and to return any minute, and people didn't want to miss it because people were pretty sure it was going to happen at Jerusalem, if it was going to happen at all. So these are probably people like that, people that are expecting the manifestation of the Messiah very shortly, and they want to be there for when it happens. And, of course, these are Jews, though. Um, the Jews were the ones who were waiting for the Messiah. It's easy for us to forget, um, you know, being the Gentiles we are, that the early phases of the church are very focused on Jews and Judaism. It was not common sense to the apostles that Gentiles would be included in Jesus's followers. Of course, we can see hints of it here and there. You can see hints of it all throughout the Gospels of Gentiles that have amazing faith, of ways that Jesus begins to include people that are not of the Jewish religion among in ways that seem to indicate that they also are his followers. Um, but it was not any, anything anyone necessarily expected that when the Messiah came, he would bring the Gentiles in on the same basis as the Jews. And at this time, the apostles are not expecting that. Um, they are Jews that are preaching to Jews. This is still bound up with a single ethnicity uh, and to a certain extent, a single language. The, the temple liturgies at this time would have been said in Hebrew. Um, and in fact, there were certain responses that the congregation had to say in Hebrew. And some people who were more familiar with Hebrew would make those responses very well. If you weren't someone who knew Hebrew that well, it could be a very embarrassing situation for you to have to go through the experience of giving those liturgical responses. Um, now, uh, one, one, one interesting thing here uh, in the next verse, now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together, and they were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And this can be a little bit hard to understand at first. I think before I started really studying this passage, I, I wasn't quite sure what this meant, or I had, I think maybe I had the wrong idea in my mind about what was going on here. Um, I was thinking, because when it says that every man heard them speak in his own language, I thought that meant that there was a gift of understanding that was being given. So if you came and you only spoke, um, let's say, just say Russian for a random example, if you came up to the apostles and you only knew Russian, you would have heard them speaking in Russian. And if you were a Greek, you would have heard them speaking in Greek. And if you were an Aramaic speaker, you would have heard them speaking Aramaic. So it becomes a miracle in the listeners and not in the speakers. But I don't think, I don't think that's what happened. Um, because it's, going back to verse 4, it says the Holy Spirit gave them, that is to say the disciples, utterance. So it gave them the ability to speak the languages. I don't think, I don't think it seems consistent to say that it also gave the hearers the ability to understand. So, but wait, so but there's people from all these different regions and all these different areas, and they speak all these different languages. How can everybody hear them speaking in their own language unless there's some kind of miraculous gift of understanding? I think what probably happened was that the apostles were talking to people like one or, one or two at a time. 
So they, they, maybe like one of the apostles would have taken this group aside and explained to them the gospel in their language. And then this group over here would have had the gospel explained to them in their language. And they would have gone around to all these different people until everybody understood. It probably wasn't just like a one and done sort of thing. But the apostles were dispersing themselves amongst them and explaining um, the, the mighty works of God in all these different languages. Now, in verse 7, um, the, the crowd's amazed by this. I mean, obviously, this is, this is remarkable. And it's even more remarkable because these guys are Galileans. Um, the Galilean accent of speaking Aramaic was reputed to be particularly difficult to understand. Galileans spoke Aramaic in a way that was hard for other Hebrew speakers to understand them or other Aramaic speakers to understand them. Think of like a really thick American regional accent where you hear that person speak and you immediately know they're from that region. There's no doubt about it. And there's such a thick accent you actually have trouble understanding what they're saying. That's what Galileans were like to other Jews and other Aramaic, Aramaic speakers of this time. They spoke a particularly thick and difficult to understand accent. And it's so funny to me to think that Jesus probably spoke with the same accent. I mean, he was a Galilean just like they were. People, when they heard Jesus spoke, knew that he was with these Galilean guys. Um, it's, it's so funny to me because when we think of like the Jesus movies or Jesus speaking in some kind of uh, production, he's always speaking either like newscaster English or he's speaking like received pronunciation English. You know, he's speaking a fairly upper crust um, accent, but it's it's funny to think that he, he would have had an accent that would have struck us as like a heavy twang or a heavy drawl or something that would have marked him out as being a particular person from a particular place that was not high status, that was low status. Um, it's funny funny for us to think of it that way, but that was probably, probably the case. And so um, the commentators say that it, it probably, even when, the, even when Jesus' disciples were speaking Aramaic, they were probably loosed from that accent. They were probably able to speak Aramaic in a way that would be more comprehensible and understandable to their audience in such a way that they're marveling at the fact that they're even Galileans speaking Aramaic in this way. They seem to have overcome their own dialect and their own peculiarities of pronunciation to make themselves better understood to their audience. Um, and so it goes on in, to give us a long list of the different nations, um, the different places where these people were from. And basically, um, this list is enumerating people from every corner of the known world at the time. If you would have thought of like East and West and North and South and this culture and that culture, it's like everybody is there. And it, it's, it's easy to see that what's going on here is kind of a redemption of Babel. We, we spoke in the children's moment about how that, that's where languages come from. And being a language teacher, I often um, somewhat humorously make reference to this because my students will ask me, well, why does Latin do this? Or why does Latin do that? Or why does this language do this? Or why does this language do that? And ultimately, the only answer you can give at a certain point is, well, there were these folks on the plains of Shinar and they all wanted to get together and build a tower, and God didn't like it, so he confused all the different languages, and it's still confusing, right? It's, it's still confusing for us to try to overcome these, we even call them linguistic barriers, right? Um, 
So um, that, was, that was where all these different languages uh, came from. And to a certain extent, that's what we have to attribute different cultures to, different styles of national dress, different literary traditions. Like all that flows from language, from us having different languages and having these barriers where we have to be cut off from one, one another. But notice I said that it seems like here Babel is redeemed. I said redeemed, not reversed. Had God wanted to, he easily could have reversed Babel to make it so that everyone spoke the same language again. You know, if he wanted to do that, he could have done that, make it so that we will all be speaking the same language and all have the same culture again and all have the same traditions again and all just be the same. But God didn't want to do that. He didn't want to just undo Babel and make everybody the same again. He wanted to redeem Babel. He wanted to take something that had been given as a curse and turn it into a blessing. The, di the diversity of languages and the diversity of cultures, and to a certain extent we could even say the diversity of the way people appear, race and ethnicity and all these things, that all started out as a curse to keep people from, being, um, to, from coming all together and being a single force. And God decided that was not a good thing, so he created that diversity. But when Pentecost comes, that diversity is not done away with. It's not revi revised out of existence. It's not undone. Instead, it's turned in from a source of weakness into a source of strength. The apostles are given the ability to transcend those barriers of language. And this is just a foretaste, of course, of the way that they're going to be soon transcending not just barriers of language, but barriers of race and ethnicity and culture. They're going to be re reaching out to um, Gentiles. They're going to be reaching out to Greeks. They're going to be reaching out to Romans. They're going to be reaching out to Ethiopians, like the Ethiopian eunuch that we see uh, uh, later on. They're going to be reaching out to people from all different cultures and races. This is a religion, this is a gospel that can't be confined to a single culture, to a single people, to a single ethnicity, to a single language. It breaks those bounds and flows outward. And, you know, this gift that the apostles were given of communication, modern scholars will look at some of the writings of the apostles, say like the epistles of Peter, and they'll say Peter could never have written this epistle. He was an ignorant, uneducated fisherman, and he's writing here in good Greek. Not necessarily high-class Greek, but pretty literary, erudite Greek. Impossible. Had to be written by somebody else. Do you remember this, though? <laughs> Do you remember Pentecost when, when that happened and they were given the ability to speak other languages and communicate in other languages? Do you think that might have something to do with why a fisherman who didn't really have much education would be able to communicate himself in the Greek language in a way that would still be worth reading and studying and reflecting on today simply as a literary document? Well, of course. Of course that's what it has to do with. And it, in verse 11, we are um, told that the message that everyone's being, that's being communicated in all these different languages to all these different peoples is one thing and one thing only, the wonderful works of God. And this is a charge to us, isn't it? To what extent are we using our abilities to communicate to communicate that, to communicate 
the wonderful works of God? Are we doing the work to the extent that we're able to reach across cultures, to reach across languages, to reach across nations, to share the wonderful things that God has done for his church and in our own lives with other people? If we are to be disciples of Jesus, as these disciples at Pentecost were, that's exactly what we must do. We must strain and use every effort we can to bridge those divides, to transcend them, in order that the gospel might be shared with the world. Amen.